This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Alrighty, we are continuing our study in the Psalms of Ascent, and we are in Psalm 130 today. <clears throat> For the record, the lady who said I was her favorite, well, that was my mom. <laughs> She's a sweetheart. I had the opportunity to hear a pastor several years ago and part of his sermon, he was telling about a, a time when his church was being refurbished and part of that remodeling was they were repainting the worship center and they, like we, had a cross attached to uh, the wall in the worship center and so in order to paint the worship center, they had to remove the cross, they put it in storage and they painted when they had finished their remodeling the the crew chief of the painters went to the pastor and, and he said, Pastor, do you want the cross back in the church? Now for, for the painter, that was, that was simply a logistical question that had to do with his job. But the pastor said for him, that was a theological question that gave him pause. It raises a, a significant question for each of us. Do we want the cross in our lives? Because the cross does confront us with the reality and the ugliness of sin. And in an I'm okay, you're okay kind of world, uh, many people would prefer that we talk about more pleasant things. But the reason that we cherish the old rugged cross, as the hymn writer said, is that the cross of Christ allows us to, to find the depths or to mine the unfathomable depths of God's mercy and to see the unchanging beauty of God's love. The cross allows us to find peace through the resolution of the most significant need of the human heart and that is to be right with God through the forgiveness of our sins. King David, who was a murderer and an adulterer, in Psalm 32, one wrote, blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven. And until that declaration resonates in our souls with clarity, nothing else will be right. Until we know the joy of our sin being forgiven, until we can sing my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. When, when we can sing that, then everything else begins to fall in place. That chasm that separates us from God is bridged and, and all of the brokenness in our lives can begin to heal. That's why we need the cross in our lives and in our church because in the cross, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. The 130th Psalm is about that reconciliation that comes through forgiveness. 
It is about recognizing that forgiveness is something in which God delights and for which God has sufficiently provided through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But, but more than that, it, it's also about knowing the loving embrace of the Father's forgiving mercy every day as we walk with the Lord Jesus day by day. So let's see what the psalmist tells us as he writes the 130th Psalm. This is the holy and eternal word of God. A song of ascents, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Well, we begin this psalm with what is seemingly an insurmountable problem in verses one through three. So we've been traveling along this trail, going to worship the presence of the Lord. So let's imagine that we are faithful uh, Hebrews and we are, we're on our way to worship. It's been a long journey. We started back in Psalm 120 when we saw the need to turn from the world and to trust and follow Jesus. And we began to make our way from our home far from Jerusalem to the capital city where we would join in thousands of others of pilgrims in, in worshiping at the tabernacle on Mount Zion. As we've traveled, we've learned to look to the Lord alone for help. We have learned the blessedness of walking in God's way. And we have faced affliction and yet we have heard the promises of God that have fortified our souls. And, and now we have reached Jerusalem and we have entered into the city and we have begun to climb the steps up to the tabernacle. We are about to enter the special presence of God. It's go time. I mean, the time is here. It's kind of like a wedding day and we've uh, planned for months and we've bought dresses and we have rented tuxes and we've hired workers and the day has come and everyone is in their place and we're down front with our best man and the preacher and the doors open and there's our beautiful bride and we look back and we, we see this, this beautiful lady. She was our girlfriend, then she was our fiance and, and now in just a matter of moments, she's gonna be, she's gonna be my bride, she's gonna be my wife and I'm gonna spend the rest of my life with her and my best man leans over and says, too late now because the time is here I mean everything is is at this moment and so here we are we are ascending the hill of Zion and we see the smoke we hear the animals we are joining with others coming from all over the holy land and the time is here but with each succeeding step we're confronted with a seemingly insurmountable problem Maybe we're thinking back to Psalm 24 and 
Maybe we remember Psalm 24 verses three and four where the psalmist says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord and who can stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And, and I think, well, he, here I am. I, I'm, I'm ascending the hill of the Lord. I, I'm, I'm about to stand in, in the holy place. And I, I don't have clean hands. And I, I don't have a pure heart. In fact, maybe I think of Isaiah 53, 6, where Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And I think that's, that's really me. I, I've wandered from God. I have, I have turned away from God. Maybe we remember I, uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, where Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And we think that's, that's my heart. My heart is full of, of idolatry and, and, and rebellion. And I'm climbing the hill to enter into God's presence. And, and deep down, I know I do not belong. I'm not worthy of him. I'm not worthy of his presence. There is a, a seemingly insurmountable problem. And, and it's me that I am a sinner who's whose sin has separated him from God. I'm a sinner whose, my sin has brought me under condemnation. And, and, and in verse one, the psalmist seems to realize this problem. And, and out of the problem of his sin, out of the depths of despair over his sinfulness, he, he cries out to God from the depths. And this verse just gives us a picture of one who is submerged in the, in the sea a place that to the ancient Hebrews was a, a place of darkness and evil and, and judgment. It's as though the psalmist is drowning in the sea of his own guilt. This is not just merely guilt feelings. It's not as though he didn't quite live up to someone's expectations. It's not like his parents wanted him to get all 100s and one day he made a 95 and he just feels really guilty that he didn't meet their expectations. It's not that he feels bad over an unwise choice. It's not like he's, he's eating a Snickers bar and he does a really dumb thing. He looks at the label and he sees 300 calories, 31 grams of sugar. I feel so guilty. It's not just feelings of guilt that he's drowning in. He has real legal guilt that comes from breaking the law of God. He has violated the law of God and is therefore guilty before God's justice. And so we see in verse three, he realizes, oh Lord, if you should mark our iniquities, that is to say, if, if you count my sin against me, then he says, no one could stand or who could stand. That's a Judicial phrase, it means to be justified or to be absolved from guilt. And so what the psalmist is saying is, God, if, if you hold my sin against me, then I, I can never be right with you. I can never stand in your presence. And in fact, no one can because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's a monumental problem that the psalmist and, and each of us faces. That here's the truth about our salvation in and of ourselves. We have an insurmountable problem. We have rebelled against God and have no hope of making ourselves acceptable. 
We are guilty of sin and can in no way deliver ourselves. And so the psalmist realizes mercy is the only option. Our only hope is the mercy of God. And so in verse two, he cries out for mercy. And and verse two gives us a little glimmer of hope that maybe there is something that can be done. And that glimmer of hope in verse two turns into a flood of joy in verse four, where in verse four he says, but with you, there is forgiveness. So verses one through three show us this insurmountable problem of our sin. Verse four shows us the infinite provision of God's forgiveness. Our hope is that out of his mercy, God will forgive us. And the psalmist declares, he will, he will. In fact, God wants people to come to him. God desires that people would be able to stand in his presence, to know him and enjoy him and worship him and serve him forever. So to make that happen, he provides forgiveness. So contrary to verse three, if we are in Jesus, he does not count our sin against us. This is the big storyline of the whole Bible, that we are guilty, but God has greater grace. This goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15, after Adam and Eve had sinned, and they had severed their relationship with God because of their sin, and they deserved death. They were under condemnation, but God came to them. And in the midst of announcing the consequences of their sin, God gave a promise in Genesis 3.15 that from Adam and Eve, a descendant would arise who would come and crush the head of the serpent. In the midst of sin, God promised a way of deliverance that was instituted in the sacrificial system. So Every time the Hebrews offered a a bull or a goat uh, on the altar of God, they were reminded of three things. They were reminded that their sin deserves death. But they were reminded that God was willing to accept a sacrifice on their behalf. And they were further reminded that the day would come when God would send the perfect sacrifice who would deal with their sin forever. This was the message of the prophets throughout the Old Testament. In fact, Isaiah 55, 7 could well describe the whole narrative of Scripture. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon That is the nature of God. And that is the essence of the gospel. And this is the God that we need to see every day as we trust and follow Jesus. As we daily walk in his presence, the reality is that we sin. And when we sin, unfortunately, our reaction tends to be like that of Adam and Eve in the garden. Our inclination is to run and hide. When we sin, we we sense that our fellowship is hindered. We sense that our our joy is robbed and replaced with shame. We, We sense that our relationships are fractured. And yet we tend to neglect the one solution for forgiveness and restoration, which is to run to God. 
And so we spend our time, instead of running into the delight of God, we run from the only one who can deal with our sin, and thus we compound our misery. I think that the reason we run from God is because of misinformation about him. I think what happens in our lives more often than not is that we think about when people sin against us. And someone sins against us, someone offends us, someone does something that hurts us, and we think about how we respond, and then we project those attitudes onto God. For example, here, here's one thing we do. We, we tend to be governed by a sense of vengeance, right? Maybe it's just me. You wonder why, why does God tell us over and over and over again throughout scripture not to be vengeful, not to seek vengeance, not to seek revenge. I, I think he does that because that's our natural inclination. We say, you, you hit me, I'm gonna hit you back harder. Or she pulled out in front of me, I, I'm gonna show her. I'm gonna give her a piece of my mind. Which is one reason why some people can't think straight. They've given away too many pieces of their mind. I, I love movies and someone asked me one time, what, tell me your five favorite movies. You know, that changes every, every week. But at the moment I, I told him five movies and, and, um, and, and after I, I told him those five movies, I started thinking and I realized four of those five movies have deep themes of vengeance. And I thought that's probably not good for a preacher. I love the movie Gladiator and, and, and that, that scene in Gladiator when Commodus walks out onto the floor of the Colosseum after a victory and, and, and Maximus is there and, and Maximus refuses to identify himself and Commodus says to him, slave, you will remove your helmet and tell me your name. And he slowly removes his helmet and he turns and he says, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. And man, we get, we get chills, man. This is, and then he gets to the end of his little speech and he says, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. And I'm like, yes, you, you go Maximus, man. That's what it's about. You get even with that evil guy. We tend to think that God is like that. We sin and we think, man, God wants to get even. And we think God is up in heaven just waiting for us to offend him so he can say, you offended me, buddy, I'm gonna hammer you. And so when we sin, instead of running to God, we think I better go run and hide because God's gonna get me. And if there's one word that comes to our mind when we think about the relationship of God to our sin, it's the word retribution. But listen to what God says about himself in Psalm 103, verse eight. He says, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Listen, God is not like us. We are quick to anger and slow to forgive, but God takes a long time to get angry and he rushes to forgive. He's fast with mercy. And when we sin, God doesn't stand up so that he can come and hammer us. God stands up so that he can run to us with forgiveness. 
That's exactly what he did in the parable of the prodigal son, one that I think we could all identify with. Here's the younger son who is just sinful, no other way to say it. He disrespects his father, disrespects his family. He takes his inheritance. He goes off to a foreign land. He lives immoral lifestyle. He wastes all of his money. And when he comes to himself, he realizes, I need to go back home. And if you remember the parable, in the parable, he gave a little speech to himself. He said, I'm going to return to my father and I'm, I'm going to tell him, father, I'm, I'm sorry. And, and I, I'll just come back and be a slave and I'm willing to do whatever. And he had this little speech prepared. And so he, he set off to go back to see his father. And, and here's the older brother who is set on vengeance. Here's the older brother who wants to set the record straight. But when the father sees his son far off, he goes running and he runs and he embraces his son and he kisses him. And, and here's the beautiful thing. The prodigal son starts to give his little speech, father. I, 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 and the father interrupts him. It's like, I don't even want to hear your little speech. Let's go kill the fatted calf. Let's go have a feast because my son who is lost, who has come home. That's what God is like. Well, does God punish sin? Absolutely. Listen, God judged our sin in all the severity of his holy justice on the cross in Jesus Christ. God doesn't pretend that our sin never happened. He is true to his holy nature, but God has punished our sins and he has punished them sufficiently in Jesus Christ. So if we are in Christ, God doesn't count our sins against us because he has already counted our sins against Jesus. Jesus, our substitute, has fully and eternally paid the penalty for our sin. There's no more price to pay. There's no more burden to bear. There is only grace and mercy to be extended and God gives it freely something else that we do. I think that we, we get disgusted by other people's sin. And out of our disgust, we, we push them away. Maybe a, a child sins and the, the parent says, you know what, you just, you, just, you just go to your room. Just go to your room until I can figure out what I'm going to do with you. Or a friend, we do something that offends a friend and our friend says, I just can't believe you'd ever do that. I, I just can't be your friend anymore. You just, just go away, never, never again. And essentially, we say to those who are overwhelmed by sin, you get out of my sight. And so when we sin, we think maybe God does the same thing. When I'm shamed and condemned and alienated by my sin, maybe I have a, a tendency to say, God must really be disgusted with me. And if he's really disgusted me, then, then, then surely he will turn away. And so we run from him thinking, if I can just go to my room and, and clean myself up a little bit and, and do right to prove myself, then, then maybe eventually I can get back into his presence and find acceptance. You know what Jesus did to show us the love of the Father? There's a woman who was taken in the act of adultery, a grievous sin. The Pharisees caught her and dragged her out of the house and threw her down into the dirt with disgust. They said to Jesus, the law says that she should be stoned to death. 
because she is a sinner. So what do you say? And Jesus said, well, let's do this. Whoever was out without sin cast the first stone. And, and the Bible says that, that they began to go away one by one. And when they were all gone, Jesus looked down at this woman and he said, woman, where are your accusers? She said, there are none. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. Listen, when the Pharisees wanted to destroy her, Jesus wanted to forgive her. When the Pharisees were disgusted by her, Jesus delighted to forgive her. Jesus didn't ask her the sordid details of her broken life. Jesus didn't say, you, you give me a plan of action for your future progress. Jesus didn't say, you, you go away and, and get yourself cleaned up and, and come back. No, in that moment, Jesus saw her need and Jesus wanted to forgive her and he did. Beloved, it's in these, these moments of our deepest shame that Jesus draws near and delights to forgive us because deep in the heart, the gentle heart of Jesus, there is deep mercy and abundant grace and rich love and abounding kindness and overwhelming goodness that flows infinitely in full and free forgiveness to all who will come to him whenever they come to him. I think we further still have these moments of the shame of, of sin when, when we're guilty over and over and over again. And maybe we've heard the rebuke, well, yeah, I, I trusted you before, but I'm not trusting you anymore. I can't believe you did that. Well, I gave you mercy before and you abused it. So don't expect any more mercy. So we, we struggle with sinning again and again. And we wonder how many times is God gonna forgive me? Surely he must be really weary of forgiving me when I continually mess up. But it's in those desperate moments that Jesus delights to extend an ever-flowing stream of mercy and grace that flows from the unquenchable depths of his love. He will never turn us away because his grace is always greater than our sin. Even those hardened sinners who squandered and, and mocked and abused the mercy of God, would you believe it? People like Zacchaeus, a hard-hearted, greedy thief who stole from, from rich and poor alike. People like the Roman centurion who actually tortured and crucified our Lord Jesus. People like the thief on the cross who mercilessly ridiculed the Son of God. When they abused the mercy of God, what did Jesus do? Jesus doubled down on mercy, saying, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, saying, today you will be with me in paradise. Oh, certainly there is deep shame in sin, and, and we deserve to be shunned. We should be barred from his presence, but Jesus took our shame, and he carried it on the cross. Jesus experienced the God-forsakenness of sin for us. So if we are in Christ, we're delivered not just from the stain of our sin, but from the shame of our sin. And we're given mercy to enjoy the blessedness of forgiveness and, and to come boldly before the throne of grace. Listen, we cannot out-mercy God. 
God delights to forgive. He delights to take the outcast and the disgusting and the rebel and the condemned and joyously and unashamedly forgive them and restore them and make them his own and bring them into his presence as his adopted son. With the Lord, the psalmist says, there is forgiveness. This psalm is calling for us to see the infinite provision of God's forgiveness and to come ascend the hill of the Lord, to come and walk with Jesus, to come boldly into his presence for he provides us with the clean hands and the pure heart that we need and he delights to forgive us. And this is, this is why we fear him. This is why we stand in awe of him when we get into his presence and we realize we're only here because he allows us to come by his love and grace and mercy we realize there is no God like this God. And we're amazed. We stand in awe at what he has done for us and the richness of his mercy, grace, and love that has cleared the path and opened the door for us to come and know him and enjoy him forever. God is the infinite source of forgiveness. Well, the psalmist continues and let's spend a few moments looking at verses five through eight because he tells us that this is something that is a daily practice. We have this insurmountable problem of our sin and, and God forgives us, but it's not just initially when we trust Christ. It's, it's every day as, as we walk with him. And so let's, let's think about the important practice for our faith that he expresses in verses five through eight. The psalmist uses the word wait three times. The word, the idea is, is to be eagerly watching, to give, to give our full attention, which is emphasized by the illustration he gives of the watchman. It's a, it's a, it's a guard who's been watching all night. He's working the grave shift. And it's coming near the end of his shift. And so he's looking for the breaking of dawn. He's looking out over the horizon knowing that, man, I can't make the sun come up, but I know it's coming and I know it's close. And when the sun comes up, I'm gonna go home, have a meal and go to bed. My shift will be over. I can't wait to see the sun. Now the context of the whole Psalm is forgiveness. So I think it's safe to say that the Lord is calling for them to be eagerly looking for God's provision, the provision of forgiveness through the sacrifice. They can only come if God extends the mercy of forgiveness and God will do that. And he'll do that by accepting a sacrifice being judged in their place. So they are eagerly looking, they are anticipating the sacrifice that will allow them to enter into God's presence. And they can't wait to see the dawn of forgiveness. They can't make that happen, but they know it's gonna happen because they know God's word in verse five and they know God's character in verse seven. So they know the word of God, they know the character of God, and so they're filled with hope. They're eagerly looking, gives them hope. Now, Pastor Josh has, has taught us that to hope means to have confident expectation that better things are ahead. So some of you were around in, in 2018. You, you remember the Rose Bowl. At the end of the 2017 season, it's kind of confusing. 
2018 Rose Bowl, Georgia and Oklahoma, and, and the game was kind of back and forth, high-scoring affair, and uh, went into overtime. Nothing was settled, went into double overtime. So it's 48 to 48, and Georgia blocked the field goal. You remember that? Blocked the field goal of Oklahoma. And so it's double overtime. That means the clock isn't running. That means Oklahoma doesn't get another chance. If Georgia scores, the game is over. It's done. And so Georgia is, is on their end of the field, and it's second down, and, and they do a direct snap to the running back whose name was Sonny Michelle, and Sonny Michelle starts to run left. And if, and if you're watching eagerly, and if you're a Georgia fan, you're watching eagerly. And Sonny Michelle, as he, as he sprints to the left, you can see the blocking develop, and there's like a tunnel. And you can see it because you're watching and you can't wait. And Sonny Michelle crosses the 20-yard line and he breaks a tackle. And when he hits the 18-yard line, there's nothing but green grass. And it's less than two seconds. It's just a fraction of a second before he gets from the 18-yard line to the goal line. But when he's at the 18-yard line, you know it's there. You can see that green grass and you're like, he's going to score and Georgia's going to win. Rose Bowl champions going to the national championship. And you have that hope of something better that's coming because you can see it. These pilgrims, as, as they ascend to the presence of the Lord, they, they know the sacrifice will be made. And they know that God will accept the sacrifice on their behalf. And they know that God will forgive them. And they know that they'll join in the blessing of God's presence. And this hope is absolutely certain because they see it in God's word. And they know God's character. And they hear God's promise. So this looking and hoping is simply the psalmist saying they see what God will do. And they trust that through his work, the best days are coming. They trust that through his work, better days are ahead. Now, the Hebrews, they had a sacrificial system. It was given to them by God. And so it was good, but it was temporary and it was incomplete. But those sacrifices pointed to the perfect sacrifice who would come who would finally and forever deal with the problem of their sin. And so as they saw the sacrifice, they gave them entrance into the tent of meeting. They also looked eagerly toward the horizon when that day, when Jesus would come and would finally and fully deal with the problem of their sin. And so they waited. And while they waited, they looked and while they looked, they hoped. And then in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law. They waited and they looked and they hoped. And then one day, God became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. They waited and they looked and they hoped. And one day, they heard the angel pronounce, for today is born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
That day came when the very son of God stepped out of heaven and took upon himself humanity and was born and grew as a boy and grew into a man and lived a perfect life in perfect obedience to the law of God. And as the sinless substitute, Jesus went to the cross on our behalf and God took our sin and he judged them not temporarily, but eternally, not incompletely, but sufficiently. He judged our sin in Jesus. Jesus Christ. And then on the third day, Jesus rose again, absolutely securing eternal life for all who will trust in him. But see, as, as we trust and follow Jesus, this is our hope that the one obstacle to our fellowship with God, our sin, has been fully and sufficiently dealt with because of the mercy of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And so we have hope and confidence, not only that God loves us, but that God loves to forgive us because he has shown us the heart of his love in sending his son who went to the cross to pay for our sins so that every day we can run into the embrace of God's reconciling love and trust his work that he has done for us every day, all of our lives. We live with that hope. So what do we tell our faith? Because let's be honest, there are days when we, when we doubt that, there are days when we wonder, does, does God really forgive us? There are days when we wonder, is God disgusted with us? There are days when we wonder, is God turning away from us? And so what does the psalmist tell us? The same things that he told the Hebrews. In verse five, he says, you tell your faith. You can write these down if you want to, three quick things. If you're doubting, Will God forgive me? He says, you remember God's word. In verse five, I hope in God's word. Because God's word is an expression of himself because God is true, God's word is true. God promised the savior would come, that savior came. So when we go to the word and we read 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's true because it's the word of God. We go to Hebrews 10, 17 that tells us our lawless deeds, he will remember no more. We believe that because it's true. So we go to the scripture and we read God's word. We read his promises and we know this is the very word of God. When God says he'll forgive us, he will because his word is true. Secondly, he says, you tell your faith to remember God's character in verse seven. He says, God has steadfast love. And the word that the writer uses is the Hebrew word that expresses the covenantal love of God, the love that, that condescends to establish relationships with sinners and keeps those relationships eternally. It's a word that expresses not just the love, but the compassion, the grace, the mercy, and the kindness of God. He says, when, when you wonder, will God forgive me, will remember God's character. And because God is a God of, of eternal covenantal love, that means that his redemption is plentiful. It's overflowing. It's abundant. It's, it's inexhaustible. Everything about God is infinite because God is infinite. If God is infinite, his love is infinite. That means it's inexhaustible. 
If God is perfect, that means his love is perfect. It's unchanging. And what the psalmist is saying is you go to the scripture and learn about God and realize this God is a covenant-making God of steadfast love. Of course he'll forgive you. He's in a covenant relationship with you. So we remember God's word. We remember God's character. And then thirdly, he says in verse eight, you remember God's work, God will redeem. God will redeem his people. So we we think back to the cross and we remember Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we realize his forsakenness was for me. We hear Jesus shout from the cross, it is finished. And we realize the work of forgiveness is done forever. We, We hear the angel at the empty tomb saying, he's not here, he is risen. We think about the gospel. We think about the work that Jesus has done and realize it's complete. This is our hope. And so we say to our faith, faith, go and read God's word. Think about God's character. Remember the gospel. Forgiveness is full and free. And when we call on God, he will hear and answer. When we run to him, he's already running to us. We have his word, we have his character, we have his work. And so ask your faith to remember those things and then allow the truth of God to guide your life, not your feelings. Brothers and sisters, we need to fight sin with all of our might. But when we fall, don't run and hide. Run to the one who delights to forgive you. And then when you fall again, run to the one who will keep on forgiving you because the blood of Jesus keeps on cleansing. The love of God keeps on delighting. The word of God keeps on promising. There is forgiveness with the Lord every single day. Beloved, I urge you to let go of the guilt and the burden and rest in the forgiveness that is secured by the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ on that old rugged cross. If you're here today and you know that you've never trusted Christ, maybe you're living in the shadows of trying to save yourself, trying to earn forgiveness. Maybe you're wondering in the night of sin and shame, listen, the dawn of God's redeeming love has pierced the horizon in Jesus Christ. The sun of God's forgiveness is shining brightly. And he invites you to come to him and he promises that if you do, he will never turn you away. Just a moment, I'm gonna pray. And after I pray, we're gonna sing. We're gonna sing a song of worship to acknowledge the good mercy of God. That though we have sin, he has much more mercy. And I trust that the song, the words of the song would express the desire of your heart to worship the Lord Jesus. If you're here today and you have a decision that you need to make, if you want someone to pray for you or pray over you, there'll be pastors and prayer partners here at the front. We invite you to come. That's why they're here. If you just want to come and pray, if you're carrying the burden of sin, would you look to Jesus today and let it go? If you have wondered if God will forgive you, would you go to the scriptures and let the scriptures shape your idea of who God is? And would you run to him today? We're going to sing, and as we sing, you do as God leads. Would you join me as we pray? Let's stand together. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more 
and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.